Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. We're actually going to pick up today right where we left off last week, which is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, starting in verse 5. So if you do want to follow along in your own Bible, I encourage you to turn there. And before we get into this, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this privilege that we have to gather together in worship uh, without fear of um, being shut down or attacked or anything like that. Um, Lord, we pray that right now you would help us to give our full attention to, these, to the scriptures, and uh, we pray that we would be able to hear your Holy Spirit speaking to us through them. Lord, we invite you to transform our hearts, our minds, and our behaviors so that they are more in line with your will, your kingdom's purposes. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. All right, Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he, do, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Now, the simple version of every healing story goes like this. Somebody's got an affliction, they encounter Jesus, and then Jesus heals them. But what we need to recognize is that the healing miracles that are recorded for us in the Gospels, there's usually another point to them besides just that. And this should be clear to us because there were a lot more miracles that Jesus did than what are recorded for us in the Gospels. In fact, that's very clear because of what Matthew is about to say. He says, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. Many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. He drove out the spirits with a word, healed all the sick. Okay, so there are a lot more healings that took place than what we are given details for, which tells us that the healings that are featured are featured for a reason beyond simply somebody got healed. 
Maybe there are a few cases where that's the main point, but there's something more going on here, okay? And that is definitely true of this story. And the key to understanding what the more is that's going on here is the fact that the person who comes to Jesus and requests healing is a centurion. Now, who were centurions? Centurions were leaders in the Roman army. They were called centurions because they were in charge of a century of soldiers, about 100 soldiers usually. And um, that means that this man would have had two strikes against him already. Two reasons why people would have considered him to be outside of the kingdom of God. So one, obvious one, he's a Gentile, he's not Jewish, he's not following the Mosaic law. So for common opinion would say that puts him on the outside. Second, and this is a big deal, as a centurion he would be an accomplice to Israel's oppressors, right? He works for the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is the empire that is, has been oppressing Israel, right? They are the empire that requires taxes from the Jews. Uh, they are the empire that crucifies people that threaten them at all, right? In fact, the only other place where the word centurion appears in the Gospel of Matthew is at Jesus' crucifixion. Why? Because centurions were the kind of people who oversaw that sort of thing, right? Who said to a soldier, okay, I want you to go and scourge that guy and then nail him up onto a tree to die a miserable and humiliating death. And yet, this centurion demonstrates great faith. The Gospels present him to us as an example for the ages of great faith. Jesus says that he has not seen faith greater than this anywhere in Israel. I wonder how the disciples felt when he said that. We're right here. (laughs) What this story does is it lifts up someone as an example of faith who no one would have expected to be in that position. That's why this story is featured, this particular healing miracle. Now, I want to be clear. The fact that Jesus heals this man's servant does not mean that Jesus is fine with the practices of violent empire. He certainly isn't. We can tell that from many other things that he said. It doesn't mean that he's saying that being a Roman centurion is a great way to spend your life. Jesus never endorses this centurion's authority, right? But what he does endorse is the centurion's recognition of his authority. The centurion recognizes, well, I can tell soldiers to go here and come there, but he knows I can't tell illness to flee a body across town. But he knows that Jesus has the authority to do that. So clearly the centurion recognizes that Jesus has greater authority than his own, which means that he must recognize that Jesus also has the authority to tell him where to go and what to do. 
He's probably not sure yet exactly what that means for his life, right? But he has that awareness, that recognition of Jesus' authority. So, common opinion would have said that this man belongs on the outside of God's kingdom. But Jesus suggests that he is actually on the inside. And that is why this miracle, of all the miracles that could get recorded, is one that is featured. That is the point that Jesus, that God wants us to see. Okay. What we're supposed to see is that Jesus is breaking down the walls that separate Jews and Gentiles. And that means that his ministry is breaking down the walls that separate all human beings. Because the Jews categorize people into two categories, Jew and non-Jew. Those were the, the two. So Jesus is making it clear that he has not just come for one corner of the planet, but for the whole world. And one of the ways that this story shows us this is when Jesus invites himself over the centurion's house. This is, might seem like a, a minor thing, um, but this is a big deal that Jesus does this here. Devout Jews did not enter into the homes of Gentiles. Because, hey, if you, op if you entered into the home of a Gentile, they might feed you some food, they might offer you some, right? And it's probably not going to be kosher. It's probably going to be unclean. So most devout Jews figured we should not enter into those homes because there's too much of a risk of becoming unclean. And even the centurion seems to be aware of this because, you know, he says, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Right? He knows that what Jesus is suggesting is taboo. Even years after this, the apostle Peter still needed help learning that it was okay to enter a Gentile home. In the, in the um, excuse me, the book of Acts, so this is after Jesus's resurrection and ascension. It's after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Peter has a vision. And in that vision, he hears the voice of Jesus saying, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And after he's had this vision, he's sitting on the roof of his house. He's trying to process, what was that all about? What did that mean? And as he's doing that, some Gentile men approach the house. And they tell him, that they've been sent by a centurion. Probably not the same centurion from the story we're looking at. Probably a different one. A guy named Cornelius. And that this centurion had been visited by an angel, and the angel told him that he needed to hear what this man Peter had to tell him. And so then it clicks for Peter. Peter realizes, oh, that's what my, my vision was all about. My vision was telling me that I should be okay with going with these people and entering into a Gentile home. And so Peter goes, he enters into the house, and he finds all these Gentiles gathered, gathered there, ready to hear what he has to say. And he says to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. And a little while later, Peter adds, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him 
and does what is right. And then he proceeds to tell them about Jesus, who, he says, came announcing the good news of peace and forgiveness of sins through his name. And then we're told that Cornelius and all the members of his household put their faith in Jesus and they receive the Holy Spirit and they become some of the first Gentile converts to Christianity. So I want us to recognize it took a special vision sent from God to get Peter to learn this lesson that it's okay to enter a Gentile home. Even after the resurrection, the ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus was embodying that lesson years before when he said to the centurion, shall I come to your house and heal your servant? So Peter was a little slow to catch on, but we shouldn't be too hard on him because we all tend to be slow to catch on. Now, for Jesus, this display of Gentile faith is an opportunity to make a point. He says, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, when Jesus started his ministry, he came announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is arriving. So, <clears throat> his arrival was the beginning of the arrival of the kingdom of God, which means when people recognized him as Lord and they received his teaching, what he was saying, it was like they were taking their place at the feast in God's kingdom. And so what Jesus is saying here in response to the centurion's faith is that many will receive him from outside the nation of Israel, right? They will come from the east and the west, like this Gentile centurion, and come to the feast. They will recognize him as Lord, and they will receive what he is saying, right? They will receive what was promised to the spiritual forefathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But sadly, many who are biologically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will not come to the feast. They won't come to Jesus and receive his teaching. Instead, they will stand outside, weeping and gnashing their teeth, outside the feast. Now, you might be wondering, gnashing your teeth, gnashing their teeth, what does that mean? That's not a phrase that we use today. Well, to gnash your teeth at someone is to speak bitterly and angrily and accusatorily towards them. You know, think of a, a, an animal like, rawr, 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 rawr. That's gnashing your teeth. A good example of this can be found in the book of Acts, where we're told that the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, gnashed their teeth at Stephen. Uh, one of the leaders in the early church. Stephen told them that they had resisted the Holy Spirit and, and said, you, you killed Jesus, you killed the Lord of heaven. And this is what it says. It says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Now, amazingly, this is very important, um, Stephen, his... Okay, so... 
Stephen gets stoned because of what he said. They're so angry, they gnash their teeth at him, they pick up stones, and they kill him. And what's amazing is that as Stephen is succumbing to death, the last thing he says is, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen never gnashes his teeth at them. They gnash their teeth at him, but he doesn't respond that way. Now, he does say some really hard truths to them that make them very angry, right? But he doesn't gnash their teeth. He doesn't gnash his teeth at them. There is a difference. People who are gnashing their teeth are people who are angrily condemning. And I don't know of any place in Scripture that describes followers of Jesus gnashing their teeth. Only the opponents of Jesus. Because followers of Jesus are not supposed to be the kind of people who bitterly condemn. They're not supposed to be the kind of people who pick up stones. Sometimes we are called to speak difficult truths that are hard for people to hear. Jesus did it. Stephen did it. But we are not called to gnash our teeth. And what I would say is if we are in the habit of gnashing our teeth, it's a sign that we're acting like people outside the kingdom. And it's also a sign that we may be cutting ourselves off from the experience of God's banquet table. Which is something that we're supposed to get a taste of, not just after death or when Jesus comes back, but even here and now in our present lives. If we're always gnashing our teeth, we missed out on the, the taste of that table. What Jesus says to the centurion actually reminds me of one of his most famous parables, the parable of the prodigal son. This is a parable that Jesus told in response to the religious leaders who were judging him. The religious leaders were, were muttering to each other, this man eats with sinners and he welcomes them. You know, people like Gentile centurions and tax collectors, like Matthew, who wrote this gospel. Matthew was a tax collector before coming to Jesus. And in response to those judgmental accusations, Jesus told a series of parables that culminated with the parable of the prodigal son. He said, There was once a man who had two sons, and one day the younger one came to him and said, I want my inheritance now, which is an extremely rude thing to do. It's like saying, Dad, I don't care if you're alive or dead. I just want your money. That's all I want. And yet this father obliges, gives his son the family inheritance, and then the son goes out and blows all that money on the first century equivalent of Vegas. It's all gone. And so he was destitute, and he was living in squalor. And he realizes, you know, I would have a better life if I just went back to my dad's house and worked as his slave. And so he says, that's what I will do. I will go back, I will grovel, and I will hope that he lets me work for him. But the son actually doesn't have to grovel. Because as he approaches his father's house, his father sees him and he runs toward him and he embraces him. And, and the son says, I, I, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. But the father just gives him all the rights of a son again, welcomes him home, 
and says, we need to throw a party because you're back. You were dead, but you're alive again. And we need to celebrate. Now, of course, that part of the parable is a beautiful illustration of God's forgiveness and his mercy. Right? But that's not all that the parable is. Because the real punchline of the parable comes at the end. Remember, the father had two sons. And remember, the reason that he told this parable was to respond to the religious leaders who were accusing him, judging him, saying, how dare he eat with sinners? Right? So here's how it ends. Um, Luke 15, starting in verse 24. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So, by ending the parable this way, Jesus is challenging these leaders who are accusing him, right? And he's saying, you are like the older brother. You're mad that I'm forgiving sinners and welcoming them into God's kingdom, welcoming them to his banquet table, right? Just like this father welcoming the prodigal son home. Are you going to be like the older brother, angry and bitter? Or are you going to join the feast? Are you going to let go of this self-righteous anger and celebrate the mercy of God and come to the party? Now, what I want us to do is to read Jesus' words in the passage about the centurion with this parable in mind. Okay, so think of that, and let's hear it again. Many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So do you see the similarities between that and the parable of the prodigal son? The younger brother is like the people coming from the east and west, the people out in the far country who are then gathered to the Father's table, right? Like this Gentile centurion. The older brother is like the subjects of the kingdom outside the feast, in the darkness, gnashing his teeth. That's what the older brother is doing in the parable, right? He's gnashing his teeth. He's bitterly complaining with anger to his father, because he doesn't think that the younger brother should be accepted. So here's what I want us to see. In both the parable and in Jesus' words to the centurion, outsiders are welcomed in, 
and insiders end up outside. Outsiders are welcomed in, and insiders end up outside. Now, this is a theme that it comes up over and over again in Jesus' preaching. Sometimes people call it the great reversal. So why does the reversal happen? Why do insiders end up outside? This is important. The reason is not because God lacks mercy and forgiveness for them. Right? As we just saw in the parable of the prodigal son, God, the, the father in that, like, loves the older brother. Right? He says, my son... Everything that I have is yours. That's a reminder, right? God loves judgmental religious leaders too. But the reason that they end up outside weeping and gnashing their teeth is because they don't want to go where the younger brother is. They don't want to be where the outsider has been welcomed in. They don't want God to be that merciful. Right? They're mad about God's mercy, and so they gnash their teeth, and they refuse to come into the feast. Last week, we looked at the healing of the leper, and I argued that a huge part of what that healing teaches us is all about mercy. Right? Jesus did not need to touch that leper to heal him. This healing story proves that, right? Jesus can heal someone from across town if he wants to. And yet Jesus did touch that leper, even though the Mosaic law said you shouldn't be touching lepers. So that healing revealed both the mercy of God towards those who are considered unclean. It revealed the priority that God gives to mercy. And it revealed that true faithfulness to God looks like Practicing mercy. And what I want us to see is that this miracle is actually really similar to the one that we looked at last week. Now, this time, Jesus isn't touching a leper, but he is drawing near to someone who would be considered unclean, right? a Gentile centurion. And he's reminding us that if we want to share in the feast of the kingdom of God, we also need to become people of mercy. Right? People who will celebrate mercy rather than gnash our teeth at it. People who want God's table to be open to all who will come rather than this highly exclusive club. Now, let me close with a thought. One of the terrible mistakes that some Christians have made is to see passages like this in an anti-Semitic way as if they are suggesting that Jewish people are afflicted with an unusual tendency to hate mercy and to be judgmental. And therefore, they are worthy of scorn and persecution. And if we ever think that, we have completely missed the point of what this is saying, right? The sin that leads the subjects of the kingdom to be cast out is not unique to first century Jews. It is a basic human problem. And that basic human problem is the sin of wanting to be insiders who cast judgment on the outsider. It is the sin of loving our pride more than mercy. And every human being is susceptible to that. I don't care what group you're part of. 
So anyone who reads these passages and responds in an anti-Semitic way, hating Jews, shows themselves to be just as guilty of what this is condemning as the original people were, right? This morning, I want to encourage us to invite God to work in our hearts. Are we the type of people who would be angry if God let people into heaven who we don't like or agree with? Or would we celebrate that mercy? Who are the lepers and Gentiles for us today? Is our heart toward them mercy or judgment? Is it anger or welcome? Let's invite God to work in us. I think we all want to be at the feast, right? Lord Jesus, um, you challenge us with these stories, with the things that you did. And um, Lord, we, uh, we recognize and celebrate just the simple fact that you have power to heal. And, and we come to you this morning as people who want to be healed. Um, but we don't just want to be healed of physical afflictions. We also want to be healed of the ways of thinking that um, bring destruction to the, to the world and to our lives. And so, Lord, help us not to fall into the same traps that the religious leaders of the and many others as well. Um, Lord, help us to be filled with your mercy, the mercy that you demonstrated through Christ. Help us to know that mercy and celebrate that mercy. Help us not to be people who gnash our teeth. Lord Jesus, we just invite you to reveal in us any ways that our thinking has gone astray. Help us to be more and more conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Amen.